0: Greetings, dear listeners. It's just Shadi and I this week talking about liberalism, which seems to be on people's minds these days. We start the discussion with Ukraine. Will the war revitalize our commitment to liberalism, or will the populace still win? We then turn to Shadi's own attitudes to liberalism. I try to press him on how he squares his commitments in a public context with his narrower ideas about promoting democracy abroad. Paying subscribers will see us go deeper in the debate in part two, including me drilling down more on how all this plays out in foreign policy. Are we Americans really more moral when it comes to war? If you're not a paying subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and become one to get the whole show in one file. A reminder to those of you who have already become members, update your players to point to the subscriber-only feed to get the bonus content seamlessly attached to the first free part. On to the show.
1: Where should we begin?
0: I think we should begin. There's a lot of talk about liberalism. I guess that's what I'm, 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 I'm realizing. I went and read Liam Bright's essay, which you praised but disagreed with in your latest. But then I noticed that there's a, a lot of stuff going on about this. Have you noticed this, that there's like it's liberalisms in the air again as a, as a point of contention?
1: It didn't fully register until you stepped out, and I just read a couple articles really quickly five minutes ago, and I'm like, oh my god, there was that out that column which yep. I hadn't read. I read it now. Yep. I guess Ezra Klein wrote something. Yeah, it does seem in Fukuyama's essay as well. Yep. So there, there are some pretty prominent folks who are who are writing about this. I guess in light of Ukraine, that you know, in indirect or direct ways, the struggle in Ukraine has made these issues more relevant. I mean, what's worth fighting for? How do you fight for the liberal idea? And I guess Ukrainians aren't really doing that per se, but they are clearly fighting for something. So it forces us to sort of reflect on how we sustain ourselves as a nation without having an external enemy, or maybe we do have an external enemy and that enemy is Russia.
0: Well, so, yeah, I think that that's, I think what I want to talk about. Uh, And I... I really picked up on that in uh, in Liam's piece as well, though he's not writing about Ukraine, and he seems to have just sort of jotted this off, uh, um, not really tied to any of those things. But they, they all do somehow tie, tie together, and it does get to that question of the nation state for me um, – let me just start by you know Frank's uh, argument uh, first. Don, and by
1: Frank, just clarify you mean Francis Fukuyama? Yeah, Frank. Everyone,
0: <laughs> we're all on first name, first first name basis here uh, at the pod. Everyone who's listening as well. Frank's essay, um, uh, I think, in, in foreign affairs, and we'll link that as well, which really deals with the nation state is. Um, is is interesting and important, uh, but the piece that he did for American Purpose a few weeks back, which was uh, saying that this was a moment for the revitalization of liberalism, um, I guess. Let me ask you: Do you think that's true, or is it? Do you hope it's true? Maybe is is the is the is the question. Do you do you feel like there's
1: probably both? I think both. I I I feel more persuaded by liberalism today than i did two months ago for sure and i i assume that i'm not alone and i'm sure that i'm not alone that um and that's partly because i've stopped caring about wokeness i'm sure my i'm I'm sure i'll get interested in that again at some point maybe when things abroad cool down but i i think i think it's more obvious now at least to me that wokeness is absurd so maybe that pushes me to have more faith in liberalism. And that might be unrealistic because obviously all these woke debates are still going on, even if we don't care about them or if we're not following them. But um, so that's one thing. But I also feel that. Well, first of all, I mean, like populism is less compelling insofar as it, it, pushes parties to lean closer to Russia. So in, in Europe, right-wing populist parties are more Putin-friendly. So they end up getting hurt to some extent by that association. So I think that those are the different dynamics that are happening from my perspective.
0: So look, you know, I, I, uh, I had a, uh, a conversation um, I, yeah, I don't think he'll mind. I don't think any of this is was was uh, particularly in uh, in private. I had a conversation with our friend uh, Ben Hadada uh, over the weekend, um, and uh, as you know, uh, he's in France, and you know, uh, while he's still uh, basically my boss at the Atlantic Council, running the Europe Center, uh, he's also doing a lot of TV over there and is watching the um, uh, the Macron Le Pen election uh, very closely. Um, and he had he he offered a really interesting bit of analysis that I think flies in the face of your optimism and kind of Frank's optimism there as well. Uh, he said that that when the war broke out, uh, Le Pen and uh, Zamour, in particular, who, as you said, um, you know the the right wing and uh, really far right uh, candidates who now represent, or at least Le Pen seems to represent, much more the sort of. Uh, Central, the not respectable, but she is the 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 uh, the sort of uh, center of gravity for the right in France. I think at this point, um, yeah. She uh, that they took big hits in the early days of the war, and uh, Ben said, you know, everyone in France assumed, uh, like you did, like I did, quite frankly, that this is a big um, uh, comeuppance for populism because of their affinities for Putin, and that a certain moral moral clarity had descended. But he said, you know, the the shocker in the first round of the French elections is that uh, that Le Pen performed as well as she did. Uh, some of the stories right before the first round uh, had her performing a little better. So I think some people have have breathed a sigh of relief that she didn't so overperform, uh, you know, expectations. But still, it's striking how well she did in the first round. Um, and the the polls for the second round again are, are giving the edge to Macron. But still, she's contending, and and. Uh, Ben said to me something really interesting. He said in the early days we all thought this was a values thing, that, you know, some clarity had been instilled and in this was damning the populists. But but he said the other thing he noticed, you know, in proper Tom Friedman style taking cabs around Paris and talking to <laughs> regular people, was that the real panic in the early days of the war was uh one about nuclear confrontation and nuclear exchange which would directly involve uh france and you know countries on the european continent and that the striking thing is uh that the really atrocious um um massacre footage in bucha and other towns that have been liberated by the ukrainians um don't seem to have actually impacted uh the standing of um of the populist candidates in in the polls they didn't they didn't seem to register like a, a a a larger impact on their credibility um instead uh you saw uh, le pen rising and and the the um again as you know and maybe our listeners do too le pen has been running an actually a pretty savvy campaign even before the the uh ukraine invasion uh, the ukraine invasion by russia um arguing for uh uh Economic things she already saw that that inflation is going to be an issue, that prices are going up, so she, she she based her whole campaign on that, and that is now increasingly resonant and Ben was sort of tentatively concluding that that you know while certainly the the moral uh, condemnation of Russia is widely felt uh, among French voters. Um, that sense of universal solidarity around values is not really what's at play. They're like, well, Russia's being terrible, and God, we wish the Ukrainians the best and we hope we can help them, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't see it as as a as a values struggle, and instead are saying, uh, yeah, but really, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to sacrifice, you know, my standard of living? Um, I forget where I saw, you know. I think it was in Britain that, you know, given the prices that are going up and energy prices and things like that, uh, the amount of extra money that's projected that each household will have to spend in the coming year, uh, it's really high, uh, something like, you know, 5,000 pounds or something like that, additional costs going up. Um, I saw some analysis elsewhere about, you know, the predictions about inflation, Um Uh, Within the United States, and again, uh, it was something like per household, uh, an additional eight hundred dollars. Could it be per month for the same basket of goods? I don't know. Don't, dear listeners, don't take my word for it. I'll try and dig (laughs) up some of this stuff, and and uh, you can you can check my figures. But but in any case, inflation is a real thing, and it's going to impact people's uh, costs of living and standards of living, and. it struck me what Ben was saying his worries about le Pen's rise are held beneath them a certain kind of i think implicit critique about um this idea that all of us um you know people who follow the ideas space very much have about the importance of these things. I'm not sure that that's how it's playing out within uh within voters and within countries and within nations so uh I don't think it you know I'm more or less hopeful, pessimistic about the future of liberalism, I just don't think it's going to be nearly as definitive as I think, you know, Frank Fukuyama hoped in that piece in American Purpose.
1: Look, I don't think it's definitive either because liberals, liberalism's weaknesses are still there and nothing can really undo that. And those are inherent in the liberal project. So what we talked about in our last episode with, with um, Christina Christine Rethinking Sex you know, we're unhappy, we're unhappy about what liberalism has given us or not given us, too much choice, too much freedom. We don't know how to contend with that. And there are these things in the liberal idea that are counter to human nature. Human nature needs some restriction of choice, unlimited choice is chaotic and difficult to process. So those things will remain and those are perpetual weaknesses within liberalism that can never be resolved. So there will always be challengers, there will always be competitors. I think the question though, is whether any of those challengers or competitors have a chance of displacing liberalism as the dominant paradigm. And that's where I'm much more skeptical that those other ideologies can do that. I mean, liberalism doesn't have to win out entirely. One of the good things about, liberal societies or liberal polities is that they can accommodate anti liberal voices within their project. Um, and we have people criticizing, um, criticizing these ideas all the time in the US, and that works and that continues. So but can any of them defeat liberalism, or create a post liberalism that is compelling and coherent that actually gains the support of Tens of mil- well, I guess in some ways, Trumpism is that, um, but that's not a, that's not a full blown alternative. That's not exactly an alternative ideological paradigm yet.
0: Yeah, I, here, I here's what I, I guess I, I I'd um, maybe want to nudge you on because largely I want to nudge you on it because you are um, you seem to you know. Well, I mean, would you? Is it fair to describe you? I mean, I, I make fun of you calling you a neocon, <laughs> but are you are you a liberal
1: internationalist? I would never call myself that because it just sounds lame.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's I a, mean, I might be, but no, but that's. I think it's an interesting question, and it it gets to Frank uh, Francis Fukuyama's piece in in uh, in foreign affairs. Do you remember uh, we had uh, Frank Fukuyama? over at the American Interest offices several years ago. I know you were there. Yeah, and, I was there. And do you remember there was a, uh, an exchange between, I forget, it was someone from maybe the NED or one of the, the democracy uh, places, and and uh, she asked a question having to do with uh, universal values and, and rights. And, and he really pulled up short. And it's actually in the essay, what's nice to see, pulled it back really short and said, well, 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 hold on a second. All of these things are imminent in the state. The state provides for rights. They're not really transcendent in any meaningful sort of way. Um, and I think that's why the, you know, liberal internationalism, and that's why I, I asked you, you know, in a, in a non-vituperative um, way, whether you describe yourself that way, is, you know, where do you situate the concept of rights and you know the, the rights that adhere to individuals um, are they transcendent or, or do they inhere in the state? Um, I'm I'm very sympathetic to to Frank's argument uh, that they inhere in the state and liberalism is a great way to organize the state, um, but that once you sort of get beyond the confines of the state, um, you run into all sorts of problems. Uh, I don't know how do you how do you grapple yeah, with that? Well,
1: the state must give those rights meaning and breathe life into them, so to speak. But those rights are also pre-political, that they exist prior to the state because they're founded on something that came came before the state and is independent of the state, which is the kind of sacrosanct conception of the individual having dignity. And this is maybe where religious inspirations come in, that the Abrahamic faiths invested the individual with a kind of inherent dignity and that individual is accountable to god as an individual um so what we look at today and we talk about egalitarianism and the individual as a unit those are ultimately what schmidt might call secularized theological concepts i mean all of this is sneaking in christianity in a secular context. And we don't even realize the Christian roots of a lot of these ideas. But those ideas that helped inform liberalism and helped liberalism become what it is today um, are, are prior. So in that sense, they're there, obviously, to implement them and to give people those freedoms and to protect the individual. You do need a state to play some role. But I don't know, does that, does that address what you're...
0: It kind of does, but this is where I, I really liked Liam Bright's essay and his, uh, critique of liberalism, um, largely because I think he takes the rights seriously and, uh, takes them as universals. Now, again, he's not a religious person. I think he's, he's representative. Well, I don't know him. I mean, just from the essay, it doesn't seem like he's, he's, he's particularly religious. Um, but it's, a uh, what I liked about the essay is that he takes the concept of individual dignity and equal rights for all individuals around the world seriously. And I think in one of the passages there, he 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 drills down onto that in a um, particularly good way, which I've seen a lot of really smart leftists do. Their enemy ends up being the state because it is exclusionary. And ultimately, even if it operates within, you know, has a... Uh, is guided by and organized along liberal principles internally, the state itself is well inimical to some kind of universal liberalism. In the sense that, at the very minimum, we've talked about this before on the on the on the podcast. The very notion of uh, citizenship is exclusionary. Means that if you're in, you have certain rights guaranteed by the state. If you're out, you don't necessarily. And that's why the question of immigration ends up being so fraught. Uh, On, on. I think this like ideas, moral plane. Um, I, I'm perfectly comfortable to say that liberalism is a convention. Call it that. Maybe that's too harsh, but I I, that is how I think about. it, is a convention that leads to a pretty good state of affairs within within a state. Um, Not perfect. Uh, There are obviously contradictions that uh, that happen as a result of this, Um, and. Uh, These are perhaps irresolvable within the state, but, you know, it's perhaps even one might say a very productive kind of uh, tension that leads to iterations of, you know, marginal improvements, both to material living and perhaps even to the recognition of, of a broader set of rights within the country. But if you instantiate that further, as I think Liam is doing in his piece and says, well, you know, rights are real, individuals are real. Pluralism and global pluralism is a real thing. Um, uh, the way that wealth is created, you know, uh, I'm trying to not not get into sort of you know uh, leftist cant about uh, capitalism and exploitation, but the way these things work is basically that you know, for our standards of living, uh, we have to go into poorer countries where uh, all sorts of standards for um, uh, what's it called uh, for for rights are lower and take advantage of that to for arbitrage reasons to to keep prosperity going in our countries. And, you know, I think the, the, the liberal would say, well, yes, sure, these are bad things, but liberalism is internally working towards this and is addressing them. So it's, you know, it's good for everyone, even if people are suffering right now. But I think what, what Liam gets correct is that there's some point where maybe that kind of contradiction breaks down um, and you have to start thinking in global terms if you take these things seriously, not as conventions, but really seriously um and i don't I don't really buy that i i i that's why I insist on liberalism being a set of conventions, not something that's inherently true um and uh because I think once you break down the nation state, you fall back to uh a nastier set of affairs because the nastiness is kind of the normal mode of human interaction, if that makes sense, you know? So liberalism to me is something that's precious and should be, it's a, it's a, it's a set of conventions that should be preserved and guarded against within, sta- within a society, but shouldn't be taken so seriously as to uh, uh, imagine them globally. Now, again, as I've argued to you many times on this podcast, you know, I have a lot of respect for the religious perspective on this, which I think grants a certain kind of weight to um, to the, the the moral claim for universality. I, I understand it completely. I'm not a believer, but I understand how at least you know, if I were, I would I would see the claim much more clearly. But even still, I'm not sure what, how that works in purpose, uh, in practice. And you know uh, Liam at one point in the essay says I'm not going to deal with what the alternative should be, but he says the alternative needs to be thought about. Um, and he identifies that alternative at the limit of where the nation state itself is – I don't know, illiberal is too strong a word, but coercive mm. and um, uh, and brutal and bad to people <clears throat> not in the in-group. I don't know. That was a whole lot of words. Yeah, Does any of that yeah, like, resonate? Look, yeah. yeah,
1: I mean the problem with post-liberalism when people are searching for these alternatives, they reach a dead end when they're writing a book or a long essay like this, that we know something is wrong and we know people are unhappy, but then when it comes to talking about actual alternatives, it's more like, let's talk about the alternatives and then no one actually offers one, you know, which leads me to believe that there may not actually be an alternative. I mean, we can, We can aspire to that and hope for that and try our best to devise modifications or even maybe not full on alternatives, but major modifications to the liberal status quo. I'm all for that. It just seems very challenging to come up with something compelling. And this relates to what I've called the problem of the last third, that if you read ambitious books that diagnose the problems in our society extremely well, then you're looking for their affirmative vision for the alternative in the last 20, 30, 100 pages of the book. It's not there, it's not there. And I don't, and you know, I joked the other day on Twitter by um, w- when I repurposed Merkel's um famous phrase, there is no alternative, she was referring to um the dominance of, of her approach to the EU and, and so forth. Um, but sometimes I feel like even if there should be an alternative to the way things are, if there should be an alternative to liberalism, that doesn't mean there is. And I think I'm starting to wonder if that's where I end up on some of these questions, because I've given a lot of thought to what the alternatives might look like from an Islamic perspective. And Islamist parties have tried to offer an ideological alternative. And for reasons that we don't have to go into now, what they end up doing is basically accepting the existing structures of the nation state, of the state as an idea. And then they superimpose rather superficial Islamic ideas onto the existing structure. But they're not offering a genuine intellectual alternative because they're stuck within modern ways of thinking and they can't see beyond the state so this is where i probably agree with liam bright that the state is a big part of the problem here the state limits our imagination it limits what's possible and we have to work within the state's constraints or it seems like we do
0: um so do you think that the state is a, a morally bad thing Cause I think Liam does uh
1: I don't think it's morally bad. I think it happens to be necessary in the modern era just because of the scale of what needs to be accomplished with much larger populations. You need to bureaucratize government, you need technical expertise. All of that requires the enlargening of the state. So when people fantasize about um small states or very limited states, they're stuck in a pre-modern paradigm i mean that was possible when there were only like two hundred thousand people in a major country but when there's like um when there's hundreds of millions then what exactly do you do um no one's been able to figure out a way to have proper decentralization where you consciously weaken the state over time can we think of any states in advanced in at least in advanced context where the state has grown weaker and smaller and shrunk, people who try to shrink the state fail. And there's a reason for that because there's a necessity, there's some necessity there. So I would, I wouldn't say it's bad or good. I think it's unfortunate that we're so dependent on states and states are so dominant in our imagination. And, you know, one of my major objections, of course, is that states distort religion, and that's a critique aimed at the Middle East that when you have strong states, states need to regulate religion because religion can become a threat to the survival of the state. So they're always interfering in what would otherwise be personal individual questions about God and what God wants and what God wills. So that is a major critique that I have, but that maybe doesn't apply as much to the US.
0: It's interesting so the, the you know i take your point about the last third i i think i've said to you before i i i don't i think that the problem is demanding the last third i think books are better if they don't even try they should just have critiques and let you know because i don't <laughs> think it, i don't think intellectuals actually create new paradigms that way i think paradigms emerge different in different ways but anyway um i'm i'm struck though that you agree with at least partially with Liam about this idea that the state is somehow the heart of the problem but is, you know, unfortunately not um transcendable if that makes sense. Um to me I I uh as I was saying I I feel like the the state is a kind of bulwark against much worse things because I generally don't see that humanity can organize itself. And it's, it's, it's much more, I think, for me, more profound than what you're saying, that like, you have large groups of people, and you need bureaucracy to organize life, and that that's the state, and we have to live with that. I think it's, it's, uh, the state provides a certain kind of peace and coherence that allows a, um, a set of Prescriptions, liberalism say, or you know, conventions, liberalism uh, to function. Liberalism itself actually has no meaning outside of it. That's that's, I guess, is profound for me. Is that you know, I, I don't think one can even think about liberalism, universal liberalism, in anything. It just it, it it falls apart largely for all the reasons that Liam's talking about. But but he he's coming at it from the other side. He's like, well, liberal ideas about about universal. Uh, equality, dignity, and the rest of them are sound and true, and how do we transcend the state to actually um, realize those promises of liberalism? To me, it's more like, in fact, liberalism is not true in that way. It can't be realized universally because of human nature, and so the best you could ever hope for for liberalism is a liberal state, Um, and even that will necessarily be very imperfect maybe self-correcting over time. So it's a, it's a it's a much more pessimistic sort of vision of it and that the limit like we're we're probably at the limit of what liberalism can achieve for quote unquote humanity.
1: Now, yeah, and this and this is why I have little interest in promoting liberalism abroad. I think we need to be more modest and that's why I tend to focus on promoting democracy abroad which allows different peoples and cultures to then decide what they want to do with that democracy and go in different directions. But this idea of making liberalism universal, I mean, I think, I think Liam's also talking about it from a, a leftist perspective. And I think we also have to be honest that humans have limited empathy. So where I really agree with you is liberalism works within the state structure because we as human beings struggle to extend our empathy beyond some circle that's close to us and i think our fellow americans is a natural place to draw the line to ask people to extend their liberal assumptions to non-americans in parts of the world they've never been and don't understand i think tests the limits of human nature that's not who we are and i don't know if we can be that and that's where the utopianism of the universalist idea um seems completely unrealistic and also somewhat frightening because it attempts to do something that is really fundamentally contrary to, to who we are. So let's just so at some at some point we have to accept the limit. And you know, we've talked before about how um every conception of the we depends on a they. Yep. So you gotta have a they. You gotta right. you gotta figure out who your enemy is. There's friends and there's enemies. Indeed. You can maybe make the realm of the enemy as small as possible, and you want to progress in that direction. You don't want to have too many enemies to define yourself against, but you still need to have a they and you define yourself in opposition to the they. And that's why, again, this is this maybe isn't good, it's just a statement of reality as it is. And that's why, you know, I'm always intrigued by the idea of how external enemies can push us as Americans to maybe not come together, but to at least realize that our differences aren't as stark. So if Russia, or to be more specific, Putin's Russia is the external enemy, it's going to be interesting to watch in the coming years, whether that helps us dampen some of our ideological divides at home. I guess I'm not super optimistic and we've, we've, you know, there's a reversion to a lot of the culture war um, as people have lost focus on, on Ukraine. But in theory, having an external enemy should help us in that regard, because historically it has.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think we're, we're in very near uh, perfect agreement on a lot of that. Rare. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask you just to roll back on something else, because I, I thought it was interesting what you were saying, uh, maybe one or two responses back, that uh, you're coming to sort of, you know, uh, becoming more skeptical of, you know, the, the kind of, um, uh, I don't know, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the projects in the Middle East of these, these Islamists who take the state for granted and then put a, a, a sort of a, a thin patina of religiosity over it. Um, and but then in the in the subsequent answer, you said that, you know, at the same time, you're you're very much a democracy promoter, not a liberalism promoter. Um, is it was there a tension there? Because to a certain extent. Um, I, I I you know, even in your tweets and in, in, your, in your most recent essay, you, you do come out and saying, well, I am a liberal. So are you are you re. Imagining and thinking through whether, you know, you're that comfortable with, I mean, there's obviously there's the realm of the possible, which is, you know, we promote democracy to allow people to find their own way and create a certain kind of society. But I mean, I don't know. I don't think you've ever been particularly enthusiastic about, uh, you know, the, the sort of Islamist project. Or maybe you have. Are you revisiting that at all? I don't know. Tell me about that. <laughs>
1: yeah just to clarify, I think I've always been a liberal, but I generally self define as a liberal who's critical of liberalism right i'm um, so I criticize from within the tradition I'm not someone who is throwing stones from outside and trying to break the structure down yeah um but that's just me, and I also realize that I'm a product of a particular environment. I'm born and raised in the u s and that means I'm naturally going to incline towards liberal ideas more than say someone who was born in Pakistan or Egypt because their context is completely different. Or Croatia. So I think that I, what, sorry? <laughs> or Croatia, I said, anyway. Or oh, <laughs> Croatia, yeah, yeah. And and this is where I think in in my most recent essay on is there such a thing as the common good, I, I try to make the argument that one can believe in, one can believe that something is true without, believing it's true for others. So if liberalism feels more correct or in line with how I think how I think things should be, that's still a very much a personal decision based on my own particular circumstances. And I wouldn't wanna extend those premises to other people in, in other countries and, and so on. So that's sort of how I see my liberalism. It's not meant to be extended universally. And I very much respect that others may want to try on, I don't want to say it's not even different systems, but different approaches to their politics. If they want to go in a more populist direction, they want to try, even if Islamism doesn't offer a genuine alternative, it still is different. You would have changes that would make liberals very nervous. It wouldn't be a complete rethinking of the state. But things like restricting alcohol consumption, uh, you know, maybe some limits on, on gender mixing at certain levels of schooling, Islamizing the educational curriculum, financial incentives for marriage or for having a larger number of kids, um, using the the mechanisms of the state to promote a particular conception of the good, even if it's not imposed, you would still see that in the kind of national culture more through television radio um arts culture and so forth so all these things could could very well happen and that falls short of a genuine alternative but it could still be ideologically meaningful and and people should have the right to pursue those projects even if we don't like those projects or think they're bad that's i guess what i would say so i'm not optimistic about these alternatives but i think that people have the right to try them out so who's we and
0: who's bad right i mean it struck me as you were delineating that how 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 tightly
1: we as americans so like if we as americans look to a muslim majority country and we say oh it's bad that this islamist party is trying to islamize the educational curriculum we can think that as americans but that has no bearing, I think, on the people in the countries in question. As long as they're expressing those desires legally and through the democratic process, they have the right to Islamize their educational curriculum.
0: Okay. Um, I, what struck me in your description there is how, how you know, neatly it maps onto what some of the national conservatives might, might want, right? Uh, <laughs> in the sense of, again, again this pursuit of the common good, which is what your essay is They want
1: on. to ban alcohol?
0: probably not but i uh, maybe no 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 i mean i think i think i remember talking to you know not even uh just back in the day uh having an argument with um uh you know my my um uh my former colleague uh peter blair who's very much a be- uh, believer and he was sending me articles about you know how prohibition itself was not not the worst thing in the world and you know <laughs> that it's been like completely oversold as a as a you know um uh, as a complete and abject failure and et cetera et cetera that yeah why why is prohibition so bad the other prominent person who I know has has said that if we could ban alcohol, even though his priors would prevent him from doing that, but he thinks it would be an excellent thing is Tyler Cowan. He's written about this <laughs> really? He's like he's like alcohol is he's like I never drink, it's poison. It is so destructive of society. Uh it it it's crippling to people, it destroys lives, it destroys lives by extension of people associated with, with you know alcoholics and things like that. It's very addictive, you know. It's a, it's a horrible thing. He's written about this before. It's it's uh, you know, and he's a libertarian oh, who you know says, but obviously my priors dictate that we can't ban such things. But uh, if I could, you know, be emperor king, I would I would absolutely something like that. I don't know if he said that, but but that's that's the gist of what he's uh, what his argument on that sort of stuff is. So yeah, let's say even including including uh, the banning of alcohol, um, but but you know the question then of you know the common good and you said we as americans one could imagine I, I can't imagine but let's 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 imagine that that the project uh for whatever reason uh takes off in a bigger way that you know i mean prohibition did happen in this country um and uh it was driven by a certain kind of religious zeal let's say you know we were talking about how wokeness is you know the great awakening it's one of the these periodic religious revivals. Um, And it's true, as Ross Douthat's noting, you know, I mean, basically, organized religion is really falling away in a big way in this country. But imagine somehow that there's um, a a, a backlash against the sort of uh, the hedonism that is sometimes embedded in the broader, you know, uh, woke agenda, that kind of like personal liberation, there is a turn to religion. And you do get a kind of um, uh, uh, groundswell support for, you know, uh, Sorab's project. Let's just, like, pin it on him, Sorab Amari's project for national conservatism, even though there's several people really thinking about this. Um, and democratically, they managed to get parts of it through. Um, and let's just, you know, name a few of them. Let's say it's prohibition. Um, let's say it's more— Sabbath laws. Some, some Sabbath laws. I don't know. I don't think Sorab's ever said anything about reforming education. But, you know, given how much education is in the sights of a lot of conservatives and, you know, what liberals, quote unquote, are doing to education and, you know, instilling <laughs> pedophile, pedophilia and in whatever. I don't believe any of that. But, but, you know, part of that critique, clearly education would be in the crosshairs in some way in some kind of revival like that.
1: So I think so Rob's supportive of the Ron DeSantis efforts to limit what can be taught at certain levels of schooling. Sure, I mean, sure. I think that it is pretty widely held yeah. among. the so, national- yeah, yeah. So.
0: So, you know, uh, like imagining a, 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 a situation where, where this comes to pass in this country. I don't think it's impossible. I find it difficult, but I don't think it's impossible to imagine something like that would happen. Um, you know, as an analyst, you'd say, well, it's Democratic, so it's fine. I have to live with it. But you wouldn't be happy. Happy,
1: happy, and, and that's an interesting w- I'm word. Trying to,
0: what I'm trying to pin you on here is that, you know, is this thing you said, like, I, I want to support democracy abroad, but I like liberalism here. And you value yes. it and you're a liberal here. So as a liberal here, you would be unhappy with an illiberal project within the culturally defined liberal democratic united states
1: yeah i would be unhappy for sure it's not what i would vote for or support but if those people came to power through elections it would be legitimate and it would be it would be something we'd have to respect and i mean that's of course always the challenge of democracy is learning to live with outcomes that you find personally distaste distasteful or threatening but that's just i mean but people have to deal with that after every election. I mean, if you're, you know, we had to deal with that with Trump and I was very vocal about talking about his legitimacy and, and respecting that. And similarly, you know, um, if you're a national conservative, you weren't happy if Biden won and you, you're you worried that wokeness will take over, but you have to, or you should respect the outcome and not challenge it as illegitimate. So I don't I don't see a huge tension there. That's part of the democratic process—is coming to terms with your opponents, right? I mean, what no, w- what do you think would be the the major issue there?
0: It's not attention for me. I'm, I'm just sort of, uh, I'm, I'm I guess I'm trying to to query you on your self identification as a liberal, and yet um, being content—well, not content because you'd fight it, sure. So that's
1: fair. Um or would I look, I don't know, would I fight it? It depends what we're talking about. Like I I probably wouldn't be opposed to Sabbath laws. I think there's there's wisdom in the idea of you know closing stuff up once a week and not trying to have a perpetual 24-7 work culture or business culture where everything's always open. I mean, so there are things that I, as a heterodox person, that I'd be amenable to and I'm, I'm willing to listen to those arguments on their merits and I can decide case by case whether this is something, you know, I would, I would support or be sympathetic to. I'm not gonna be ideological about it. But if these, peop- you know, if these people come to power, they're also not going to undo liberalism. They're gonna be still be working within a liberal framework They'll just be pushing things in a somewhat more illiberal direction, but we're not talking about a completely different regime. That's that's not really conceivable, especially if they're winning at the state or local level. Then we're talking about again modifications onto existing structures, and that's not exactly revolutionary. And I know we asked Sohrab about this, and this has been a kind of a theme that's come up a number of times. To what extent? Are anti-liberals or non-liberals in America actually pushing for revolution in the sense of changing the American regime? And that's where I think a lot of it's rhetorical because, first of all, it's it's likely close to impossible to to do that. Um, and uh, but who know you know who knows what might happen in the future. But i I'm, I'm I'm sort of assuming that a lot of existing liberal structures will still remain. And because liberals are so culturally dominant in America, that even if national conservatives gain support on the local or state level, they're still constrained by the overall liberal dominant culture.
0: But, um, you know, you you were one of the signers of the initial anti-woke letter that was published. uh, Was it Mother Jones? Was that where it was published? <laughs> Mother Jones. I don't know. Where'd you publish oh that thing? Oh my god, no, Harper's. Harpers, man. Okay, Mother Jones, Harper's. Um, and and it was a a um, a very you know impassioned call for a you know semi-existential threat, which is interesting since then how much the right has run with that, right? Um, and especially, you know, even talking to Sorab and, and you know, reading his stuff, and a lot of the people there are convinced that, you know, and you have a lot of sympathy for this. I, at least you've, you've, you've voiced it before that, that you know, having control over uh, the cultural institutions, um, you know, gives a lot of leverage to sort of shaping the the bigger discourse. So I wonder, you know, I mean, I think part of the the idea that national conservatives would have is one that, you know, by resting control of a lot of these kinds of institutions, you could start reshaping the country in a way that would drift away from liberalism. So, I mean, that's maybe the the other sort of question about it. You know, is liberalism so intrinsic to this country that it 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 can't be played away with? Because again, that's part of the worry about wokeness is that certain kind of ideals are being undermined through this long march to the institutions. And the flip side of it would be that, you know, I think a lot of conservatives have concluded that, well, you know, that's the game as it's played right now. We need to seize the institutions in order to reshape society more broadly, more in line with what we are. So now society becomes this very malleable thing and we're worried about the malleability of it. And does that undercut your sort of con- like your certainty that they're operating within a firmly grounded liberal framework? Is there not anything there to be worried about?
1: I know they wanna undermine it and they're open about that. I just don't see that as being possible in, in the current dynamic, it might change. And I guess I'd say it frightens me in so far as like, what I really want is people not to bother me. And this is where my misanthropic side comes out. Yeah, I don't like the idea of the state interfering in my life. And what I always liked about America, and maybe this is coming from a place of privilege, is that we we didn't look to the state growing up as a focal point in our lives. Um, and that's not. And and even you know, even when we did, we did have financial problems in our in our family, there was never this idea that the state is the solution. Um, and I appreciate that. And I I kind of just want to you know. I want to live my life in a way where the state isn't telling me what to do. I know that sounds like a little bit libertarian, but I just want to have, I want to carve out my own space to live my life the way I want to live it. Um, If that starts to be threatened, then I'd probably express more opposition. So it's a question of how much these changes would actually touch me personally. So wokeness is an, it's all around us and it's part of our, Structures in any number of ways, corporations, institutions, um, bureaucracies. Um, but it doesn't necessarily affect me directly enough for me to be legitimately organizing around it. I know for some people it has affected them in that more personal way, especially on the on when it comes to local schools and what your kids are being taught. So I get that. But I think that's what I would be watching out for if there's some future like radical right party. To what extent does my autonomy start to be threatened as an individual who makes his own choices and decisions?
0: Okay, so here's maybe the the core of it. Let me push you like this. Um, I think you define uh, a freedom of press and you put it in the democracy category. But isn't that like the core liberal category, that it's the core liberal guarantee of pluralism? That's it for part one, dear listeners. In the subscriber only section, Shadi and I continue the conversation and go even deeper on the implications of our priors. Is the United States a moral power? Does that make us better? What does that even mean? Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. See you in the bonus episode.